Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The 80s Rewind Show Podcast. It's time to bring you yet another amazing episode. And now... Welcome your host, Rob, the face for Radio Burgess. Enjoy the show. Hello, hello, it's the Is Rewind Show with me, Rob, the face for Radio Burgess. Welcome along to today's episode and thank you so much for joining me. Uh, what have I got for you today? I've got a fantastic episode. But first, before that, if you want to contact me about the show, you can contact me at... The80sRewindShow at gmail.com So if you want to email me and talk some 80s or to uh, suggest some guests, just email me at... The80sRewindShow at gmail.com Now, forget to do it all the time. So if you can, like and subscribe uh, to the show. And if you could share it, that'd be great. If you want a kiss on the cheek from me, you can leave me a review of what you think of the show in Apple Podcasts. It all helps, doesn't it? So yeah, if you can, like and subscribe. That would be absolutely amazing. Now, today's guest, Simon Napier-Bell, uh, a name to some, unknown to others. To try and fit Simon's achievements into a podcast will probably take five podcasts. The man has done so much. He's been a manager. Uh, he managed John's Children, which had Mark Boland in it. He managed um, the Yardbirds, and also he managed Wham! and Japan. He's also the author of five books about the music industry and his time in the music industry, and they are really, really worth a read. Um, and also he's just made a new documentary about George Michael, which has just been released, which is fantastic. And it's available on Amazon Prime, and it's amazing, really amazing. Um, if you're a musician or your friends are a musician, make sure you send them this episode because Simon talks so much about the music industry, it will blow your mind. And the knowledge he gave me while we were just talking about stuff. I'm not a musician, um, but we were just talking about the music industry and I can tell it's going to be really valuable. So if your friend's a musician or you're a musician, send it on because they're going to love what he's going to say. And the stories are amazing. Anyway, let's get on to it. Here's today's episode. Let's do it. Um, so when you were sort of growing up, what sort of music was around the house and what inspired you to sort of, because uh, did you become a jazz musician? Well, when I was eight, nine, ten, uh, like most kids, I would listen to Top of the Pops. It wasn't Top of the Pops. In those days, you listened to Radio Luxembourg, which came from Luxembourg. Mm. Uh, there, was a, there was a top 20 every Sunday evening. Um, by Delivered by my uncle Horace Bachelor, who had a system of winning on the pools. Mm-hmm. And you listen to this music fade, it faded in and out. You know, it was, it was um, the old-fashioned AM radio coming from overseas. Um, and the music was appalling. I mean, I even at 10 or 10 years old, I thought this music is just not listenable to us. <laughs> Songs like, if I'd known you were coming out of Baked a Cake, how much is that doggy in the window? I mean, just terrible American songs, uh, all covered by English artists. And then when I was 10 or 11, I discovered trad jazz. and completely fell in love with it. Got a trumpet yeah. and became a trumpet player. And when I went up to school, I joined the jazz band. So from 10 or 11 years old till I was 18, I never listened to any pop music at all. I mean, absolutely none. I went out of the window, I listened to, to trad jazz, and then bit by bit I converted to modern jazz, the Oscar Peterson and Miles Davis. And we had a good school jazz band, although that was always trad jazz. Right. And... Uh, then I went off to America when I was 18, determined to be a professional musician. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was going to be a great jazz musician. 
But the first thing I learned is don't make money playing jazz. <laughs> all the great jazz musicians, I had all their records in my bedroom since I was 10. They all had to get jobs doing other things. I, I hadn't realised they didn't make money playing jazz. So yeah. I, I, I remember sitting on the television one night when I first arrived, and there was a, um, it was the New York Symphony Orchestra, and there was Roy Eldridge, who was a famous jazz player, playing in the New York Symphony. I mm. couldn't believe it. Um, and like everyone else, I had to go and get a job. I got a job in a dockside tavern where we had to play pop songs. So I had to learn the pop songs of the day, and I hadn't listened to a pop song since I was 12. Right. And I went and they were fantastic. They were Fats Domino, they were Frank Sinatra singing Come Fly With Me, they were Bobby Darren. These were works of art, completely different from the pop I'd had to listen to when I was 10 years old. Yeah. And I was rather won over. I thought, you know, it's jazz, it's not so wonderful. Pop is real artistry and finesse. So I think that's when I, I didn't fall in love with pop. I began to appreciate that this was a, a solid musical form worth some time and effort to get into. And then when I came back to England later, um, and I became a manager of a, a rock group, the first group I ever managed was one of the biggest groups in the world, the Yardlers, were a rock group. Wow. And I'd never listened to rock music, ever. I'd learned, I'd listened to jazz, I'd listened to pop in America to learn the songs in my new jazz backwards. Mm. And here I was managing this rock group, and I had to go off to the studio to make that first record that was produced. Mm. I'd never listened to a rock record, so I stayed up all night the night before listening to rock records. It was a completely new form. So that was very exciting because I discovered I discovered the affinity of rock with the blues, so it wasn't so far away from what I'd liked when I liked jazz. Mm. And uh, so that was my beginning of really knowing music. You know, music. Wow. And then from... So you, you came back to England. Did you get into films after that? Is that right? You started to do some music. Yeah, I, I came back from America. I mean, I, I, I was music. I've been, a, I've been, I've done my living as a musician for three years in America. Mm. And then I came back to England and didn't want to be a musician. It, it was, I was a trumpet player, but I wasn't a natural trumpet player. So I had to practice three, four hours every day. If I had a day off, I had to practice five hours. And some people were fantastically much better than me. And I said, you know, how much practice do you do? I said, oh, I never practice. You know, some people just had a, a natural ability. Yeah, uh, I guess it's like being a footballer or an athlete. I think some people have a really natural ability. Anyone can get quite good, yeah. which is what I've done. Um, so I, I gave it up. It was just like being in prison, having to be tied to this instrument every day. And I came back to England. I got the film industry, because an assistant film editor. Mm. But when they find out I knew music, could write and read music, I was more used to them, so they made me a music editor. So when there was music on the film, I'd get that job, mm. um, which is good. It's very well paid. Began to make a lot of money, so I went out to trendy nightclubs. The money I was making, and there I would stay till two or three in the morning, and I've met all these new friends in the club. And mm-hmm. Two or three in the morning, I said, "I've got to go home now. I've got to be in the studio in the cutting room at eight o'clock in the morning." And they said, "Oh, we're staying." And I said, well, "How can you stay? What job do you do?" And they said, "Well, we're in the music business." And I thought, "That's that's the business I want to get into. It's like a style for a night like they do." <laughs> <laughs> but when I got into the music business, what I found was you did stay up all night, but you still had to be up and working at eight in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> That's the bit they forgot to tell you about. Yeah. Because you got three hours less sleep. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> I could have done it anyway, right? <laughs> oh, I love it. That's, that's wicked. And where did um, Dusty Springfield come into your life? At what point did she appear? Um, well, it, it, it was around then. I mean, I was in the film business making all these friends in, in the nightclub, so it's clubs like the yeah, Lib Club, which is the trendy music business club at the time. And I had this very good friend I'd make 
called Vicky Wickham, who was one of the producers of Ready, Steady, Go, which was the youth television mm. show at that time. And um, one day she said to me, uh, she said, where, where would Dusty Springfield get English lyrics for a song? And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, Dusty just came back from the San Remo Festival in Italy. And, um, and she bought a song with her, sort of song which won in Italian. And she wants to do it in English. So where would she get lyrics from? Mm. And I said, well, why don't we do them? And Vicky said, well, because we've, we've never done lyrics before. I've never daunted by things like that. And so we sat down and did them. Crazy. Number one record. So that is good cool. advice from me. <laughs> That's great. I mean, where did the inspiration come from? Was you writing from a background of experience or was it just sort of... No, no, no. no. I, mean, I, was I was musical and I knew music, could write music, but I've never written any lyrics. Mm. Uh, I, I, think I got quite into poetry. When I was in America, I got into the beat poets, Red Kerouac and Natalie Ginsberg and all the contemporary poetry. So I was quite into words and rhymes. But um, when we, we took this scratchy old acetate dust you brought back from... Uh, San Remo. Well, we we had we every night we had went to dinner. We went to the acting club, and so it seemed a bit annoying to interrupt that schedule with having to write a song. <laughs> so after dinner one night, uh, Vicky and I got in the cab and went back to her flat in New Cavendish Street in London, mm. and said, "Well, we'll do it. This is an hour. Then we want to get to the acting club. We don't want to miss the fun." Yeah. Um, so we put on the record, and out came you know you don't have to sound it, nothing the outrageous orchestral introduction. <laughs> You know, and I said, oh, my God, it's, it's Italian, it's, it's a love song. It's, you, you've got to use the word love because it's obviously a love song. Yeah. I didn't know what it said in Italian. Right. And Vicky, Vicky and I were very unromantic. The, the 60s wasn't a romantic period. It, it was a shagging period, not a romantic. <laughs> the pill had been invented, and the pill didn't, didn't nurture uh, romance. It killed romance. You know, there was no need for romance. Yeah. You just did it. And... Um, and Vicky said, oh, love, well, I can't, we can't write a word about song about love. I said, no, it's Italian. We've got to say, I love you, I love you. And she said, no, you can't do that. I'm not doing that. And I said, oh, I don't, I don't love you. And she said, well, well, that's a bit strong, isn't it? And I said, well, how about I don't have to love you? And then she said, well, you don't have to love me. It's all right. And then that didn't quite fit. So I said, you don't have to say you love me. And that just fitted very nicely with the Italian lyric. So I said, well, that's it then. You don't have to say love me. You've written the song. That's crazy. And she said, what about the best song we do that in taxi? Which we did. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like... But we missed an hour, we missed an hour of the Advent Club that night. <laughs> so it's almost like a, an international song. You wrote to the intonation of this, the, the tune rather than... Well, no, it, it's very interesting. because It's quite serious. That you don't have to say love me. was interpreted by Dusty as a passionate love song and somebody who didn't care for it. She loved them. Mm. And everybody who hears it, makes their own interpretation, which is always what happens with songs. People yeah. find their own meaning in it. But really it was a pulling line. Because, you know, if you went out in the evening, two or three in the morning, you met some girl or guy you wanted to go to bed with, um, and you say, come on, let's go home and have a shag. And they say, oh, well, no, you know, I can't do that. You know, I don't really know you well. And I say, oh, you don't have to say you love me. Just, just go and have some fun. <laughs> so it, was, it was, wasn't romantic at all. It was a pulling line. <laughs> But oh, Dusty songs is romance. Everyone else feels that way too. That's fantastic. I mean, she pours such emotion into that song as well. It's, it's oh, it oh seems- she's amazing. But you know, so many songs. When you know, by now I'm a sort of a great knowledge of songs and how they're written and what what makes a hit song. And I didn't know anything then. But so many songs, people say, "Oh, it should have been a hit." Mm. What makes a hit is song, the lyric, tempo. 
chord structure and that first ever version. Yeah. Because many songs might have been number one, never been hits at all, because they didn't get that magical first version. Yeah. And it is yeah. that usually you can't separate them really. Yeah. Someone said to me once, what would be your, your fantasy record if you could construct one? And as I said, it would probably be a duet between Dusty and um, Karen Carpenter or Dusty and Sandy Denny from Fairport. I think those, those two voices together, either or all three, would have been just an amazing combination. It's, just, it's, it's amazing yeah. when you get these combinations. You watch that song which, which uh, Dion Warwick and Elton and Stevie Wonder do all together on stage. Uh, that's what friends are for. That's it. Yeah, yeah. And you hear one of them singing as a solo song, and it doesn't work. The hair only stands up on the back of your neck when the three of them are doing it. That's right. Yeah. And a good example of where the right singers at the right moment just made it all come together. Yeah, it's just all three of those singers had that underpinning of sadness to their voices as well. And then when they, you know, release, it's just the it's going to. What's well, extraordinary? I mean, that's it's a very good example of that song because they've got that innate sort of. Hurt in their voice, but but when you have the separate, that, that hurts all means something different from each of them. They yeah. don't they don't do it. You don't feel it for the same reason. They've all got a different element of hurt. Yeah. So when it all comes together, it's extraordinary. And of course, in a way, it's a happy song because they're saying, "Look, we're all here together. Let's not be sad." Yeah. But there's a, a tremendous, um, a tremendous emotion in the three of them together doing this. It's just um, uh, it's amazing where it can take you and what it makes you feel, isn't it? Like loads of people have turned their lives around on songs, and it's just voices like especially Dusty's as well. Just the way people hook onto the voice and go, "No, I'll be all right." You know, I've had music. Blues. But of course, that song turned my life around because suddenly, uh, from being in the film business, I was in the music business and mm-hmm. number one. You know, it's like, and then the Yardbirds phoned me up and said, "Would you like to manage us?" I'd never managed a group before, so Probably. but I'm not someone to say no. And they were. <laughs> Well, there were three big rock groups in the world, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and the Yardbirds. The Yardbirds were sort of the musicians, musicians group. They were the real yeah. blues group. And so suddenly I was managing one of the top rock groups in the world with the number one hit song with Dusty. Yeah. And everybody thought I was a genius except me because I knew I didn't know anything about management and I didn't know anything about writing songs. <laughs> and I was just waiting to fall, you know, and, and – uh, and if you start at the top, you can only come down. And I'm just seeing like get the older and lower. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, was it a, an easy transition to management for you? And I know you say you were nervous. Was it n- not at all? Not at all. And they knew more than I did. I mean, they'd all been in the music business for four or five years, you know, wow. and for them to give me their confidence was amazing. But I had to go in the studio with them because their previous manager had been a producer of their records and they thought that's what the manager did too. Right. So I the studio and produce I mean I've got a new book coming out in um, at the end of the year and one of the stories I tell it is it's about producing. I mean I have told it before in one of my other books about mm-hmm. producing and this is another element of it. But but when you don't know I mean I looked at it and thought well the, the idea of a good producer is out of the studio comes a good record. Yeah. And you know, it might be because you know everything. I'm telling them what to do. Or it might be just because you're clever enough to see who knows everything and let them do it. Mm. And so I subscribed to that. You know, I'd go for a cup of tea and it could come back. When I came back for my cup of tea, it sounded better than before I went. So I thought, <laughs> oh, I'm quite a good producer. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, you produced, uh, is it Roger the Engineer? You helped co-produce that album. Is that right? Yeah, I was co-producer of that. Yeah, we can. I mean, I, I, was, I got very involved in it, but I didn't. 
No, Paul Samuel Smith, who was the bass manager, my co-producer. He was the, he co-produced with the previous manager, George Kowalski. Right. And then I co-produced. And yes, obviously, I, I, I always had an instinct for for, for dealing with people. Manipulation uh, isn't the right word, but balancing people. I managed because it is, obviously, I've learned now, it is something I know about all quite instinctively, probably. Mm. It's something I had in me. But at the time, I didn't know I had it in me. At the time, I thought I was faking it. And then bit by bit, when you do it over the years, you find, yes, well, I, I obviously do have some natural ability for it. Yeah. But at the time, I just thought I was fooling them. Um, and so I was trying hard to, to listen and say, why don't we do that? Why don't you do that? And, but really, I was dependent on, on Paul and the engineer to tell me when it was sounding good. I, I didn't know. I was, you know, I came from a jazz background. And when we went to the studio, the first song we recorded was over under Sideways Down, which is a single. Mm. And they hadn't written it. They, they started writing in the studio. I was shocked. I mean, the studio was, well, it's 10 pounds an hour, but it's just the same as paying 300 pounds an hour now. Yeah. And um, you don't go pay 300 pounds an hour to sit down and say, shall we write a song? You're meant to come in with the song all finished. Yeah. And then the first verse was, there's an intro in the first verse, 16 bars went by and they hadn't changed the chord. Now, if you're playing a jazz song, you'd have had 15 chords by now, you know, one after another. <laughs> building up and changing. And I was actually shocked. I said, don't you think you should maybe change a chord after four bars? No, 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 man. No, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be cool. Let's stay with the same chord. And so I was introduced there to rock and rock thinking. And of course, bit by bit, I came to understand it. Yeah. The longer you go, the longer you go out changing a chord, the more exciting it will be when you change it. Yeah. So it's, that's, um, that's the thing. It's, it's called release, isn't it? It's um, something in release. Oh, it's a tension and release. It's like holding your yeah. orgasm up for a long time, isn't it? Yes, it, yeah. <laughs> I can't do that. Um, it's better in the end. <laughs> um, so was Jimmy Page in the band at this point? Had he just come in or did he just move? No, no, no. After we'd made this record, um, we went off to do a gig, lots of gigs, but one we did in Paris. I was walking back from the gig to the hotel with Paul, and he said, I hate playing live. It's the worst thing in the world. Every second we're on tour, I hate it. And I didn't know anything about management. You know, I said, oh, poor chap, fancy doing something you hate. That's horrible. Mm. You ought to leave. And I didn't know that a manager's first, foremost job, the most important thing you ever do is keep the band together. That's <laughs> what it's about. I didn't know that. So I said, oh, you poor fellow. You don't enjoy it. You, you ought to leave. Do something else. And he said, oh, thank you very much. I'll do that. And so I was suddenly left with it greatest rock band in the world minus one person and what an idiot i mean i, I just didn't know yeah. and um but previous to that i'd been writing after i wrote you know say love me i've been writing lots more songs trying to get another hit and making demos when i made the demos i always found up a, a book a fixer who books book musicians for the sessions yeah and one of the musicians he always sent along was this fabulous guitarist jimmy page yeah. And so I thought about him and talked to the others in the band, and they all said, oh, we know Jimmy, he's a great guitarist. And um, and so we called him up and asked would he like to play, but I didn't know. I knew he wasn't going to play the bass. There was latency, was the bass player. Right. And I, I just knew, because I, 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 I'm quite a good judge. I didn't know about management, and I had quite a natural judge of character. And I said, you know, Jimmy's not going to play bass. He might do it for one gig or two gigs, but he's... Mm. It last two songs. So the, the third song of the first gig, he walked across the stage and handed his uh, bass to Chris Dreyer, who was the rhythm guitarist, and took Chris's rhythm guitar. <laughs> and he never 
basically. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Because when you had these two incredible guitarists, Jimmy and Jeff, standing opposite sides of the stage, there were no mixing desks in those days. Right. And so the sound you heard in the audience came straight off the stage. It wasn't dealt with by a mixing desk. And so you, you didn't get effects, so you couldn't have a stereo effect on a guitar. But if you had two guitarists, one each side of the stage, you've got a stereo effect. Wow. So they played all the solos Jeff Beck was famous for playing as his own solos. They played in unison, wow. uh, and it's an extraordinary effect. But they weren't happy. Neither were happy. Because no. Jeff now had to share the applause with Jimmy, and Jimmy was playing Jeff's solos on his own. Wow. So there was a big distinction. But I was learning. By then I had learned that keeping a group happy is not the managed job. It's keeping the group productive and creative. Yeah, and so the more tension there was, I realised the tougher the music sounded, the better the music sounded. Yeah, so I was learning a bit about it. I mean, it's the same as the Sex Pistols, isn't it? That you all sort of <laughs> were arguing and just made it an amazing album, Oasis. It's no different, is it? Your attention is can be amazing. Oh, I mean, yeah, very very few good rock groups uh, are happy and settled. And of course, what happens? You look at uh, people when they get in their thirty-five, forty years old, they've had the hits, and then move on to becoming. I say master craftsmen rather than artists. Yeah. And they're all happy and they you know, but it sounds like it. So you you listen to albums, new albums by Pink Floyd, you listen to Sting's albums, they're beautiful. I mean they're fantastic, beautiful music, but there's no tension in them at all. Yeah, there's no grit. That, yeah. It's gone. Amazing. And then so when did you discover like John's children with the young Mark Boland? When did when did that come about? Oh, Mark Bowman just knocked on my door one day and it came into my flat at seven in the evening and I, I don't really people like I don't like people doing that. Mm. So I rather intimidated him and said, Oh, you make guitar with it. And I said, You think you're a singer, just sit down and sing songs. So he just sat on an armchair and I had this big armchair and he climbed up and sat in it, not on it, in it, cross legged. <laughs> and started playing all these amazing songs. And after forty five minutes I just said they're, they're fantastic. We've yeah. got to record them. Booked a studio there and then at eight thirty at night. I booked a studio and we took a taxi there and recorded all the songs again. Wow! And that was the beginning of managing Mark. It's, it was. I mean, what... John, John's children followed followed on after that. I mean, John's children was really my ideas. I wanted as much as the Yardbirds were fantastic to manage, or rather, it's fantastic to be the manager of the Yardbirds. They weren't so fantastic to manage. They were difficult because, because they knew that I didn't really know. <laughs> and. Um, my feeling was to get a, a new group, you know, which would be my group from the beginning. And that was my idea with John's children. But, I, you know, I, we, we did, we weren't quite successful. It wasn't really, really big. I didn't really achieve what I set out to achieve. Right. Like I said, you know, I started at the top and I've, it's been a long, slow slip down. <laughs> 50 years of slipping down the greasy pole. And you haven't even hit the bottom yet? Yeah, you hit the bottom. And um, was, was Mark happy to join a group or was he sort of already ready to bust out? I thought he time? wouldn't be. It was amazing. Yeah. He, well, he wasn't to begin with. He thought he was going to be a superstar. And then when we took his records, his records, the first record we made, we took it round to radio station. To, sorry, the first record we made, we took it out to record companies. And then none of them liked it. They, you know, A&R people are not, not very perceptive. They certainly don't want anything very new. They want something they're familiar with. Yeah. And, you know, they also, oh, you know, don't like the voice or the voice is great, but don't like the song, all those answers. All those sort of Devious answers you get from A and R people and record companies. Yeah, and in the end, I had I said to Mark, they're not they're not going to get this put out. Yeah. Why don't you join God's children 
and you could sing the backing vocals, and then people would get used to that voice, special voice, the quivery voice. Yeah. Uh, and then when you get a hit, you can leave, and they'll know your voice. And they're already the star of the group. And he agreed, and I, I was surprised he agreed, and he really enjoyed it too. He did. Like he joined it in a very possible way. Yeah. I mean, I think um, it... for a while, eventually he got better. <laughs> I think if it wasn't for Mark, you wouldn't have a Brian Ferry. I think you know. I think it would have been the other way around. I think one of them would have to. Have... Had a Mango Cherry, would you? Yes, yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. That was when Mark, that was when Mark really it hurt him. You know, when his voice had, wasn't accepted, so he joined John Children. And then one day he turned on the radio and heard his voice, and it was number one. Wow. And that was it. He wasn't going to say anything. He going to do it himself. Oh, amazing. I think he's... It's interesting. You know, from then, because with the others, I, I often joined in the writing, although I didn't give myself any credit for it because I didn't think it was the right thing to do. And also, I didn't even... I don't think he even recognised that I was writing. It's only like later on, I realised that a lot of what I did was co-writing. Mm. Because I sort of thought of writing as something much more serious than the way they tackled doing songs. Yeah, but it's interesting that you know one of the things that which happened during COVID, this was coming up to the recent times, is having the last five years I'm mainly making films, documentary films. Mm. And when COVID started, I was making a film about George Michael, mm. which came out last month. And um, and one of the things making this film about George made me realise how much. Writing songs, how wonderful it is to write songs. What a, you know, what an amazing to do. I wonder, why, I wonder why I stopped doing it. Yeah, and uh, I, I couldn't really think why I'd stopped, except that um, most people who are top songwriters do treat it like a like a job. They go in the office every day, go in the studio every day at nine, they work all day. And even people like Diane Warren, she's had seven hundred hits, but she's had seven thousand songs with work hits. I mean, it's not. Right, yeah, you don't work if one's a hit. I. I didn't really enjoy doing that. Yeah. So I hadn't done it. But when doing this film with George, it really made me think, I, I want to write songs again. And just at that moment, um, a friend of mine from Holland called me and said I'd been writing songs with a, another friend of mine, just a, a top rock producer here in Holland. Mm-hmm. And we could always songs with, with no words. Would you like to have a listen to them? And I sort of thought they'd be rubbish. Yeah. Uh, I just thought it's just an amateur. It was not an amateur. He, said, he had been a professional, but he was really left music to go into business. So he made some money in business. And he said, and these amazing songs are fantastic. And I said, the musicians are fantastic. Who are they? He said, oh, well, we use all my friends. I said, well, who are your friends? Oh, they're all the top musicians in Holland. And these are the top rock stars in Holland. And I said, well, he said, well a couple of them are actually two of rock status quo. So wow. he's, he's got good friends. <laughs> um, so I sat down and wrote the lyrics. And I've got to say, that, that made COVID the most enjoyable year I've had for 10 or 15 years, writing songs was so rewarding. Wow. And we came back again with this fantastically good rock album. <laughs> um, a bit out of its period. It is classic rock, but it's it's as good as any rock album I've ever heard. And, that, so, and you know, it, this wasn't done to make money. I and mean, sometimes in the music business, you reach a point where you, you don't have to think this album's got to be a hit or got to yeah. make money. It's just really good to do. And I guess that's where major rock artists get to when they're at 45 or 50. They're more just just making an album which fulfills something for them. So I was really, really excited to, to do this. And when I listen to it now, I just think that's, in some way, you know, we're not looking at talking about commercial success or a huge public acclaim, mm. or so far, maybe there will be, but it is uh, very, very satisfying because it sounds as good as any other rock I've done. Wow. And it does take me back to the albums and think, hmm, maybe I should have kept on being a manager. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure. Because managing rock groups is, is hard work. Yeah. 
at least with um, you know, when you write a song, you just get royalties. You don't have to go out and do. <laughs> you can you sit at home. Not much now. Oh really? It's, I mean, you still you still get royalties, but the changes are huge. I mean, the the, the difference now in what you make as a songwriter, but yeah. certainly as a record producer, because mm. it's record producers who suffered the most. The record producers, um, what you got when you made a record was a royalty. You every famous artist you got a percentage of the royalty which they got. Right. And now record producers, like most artists, don't really get record royalties at all. They're a very, very small amount. Wow. So record producers, more than anybody, have suffered from streaming. Songwriters, not so much. If you're writing hit songs, you'll still get So there's a very good infrastructure in place to play songwriters. That's crazy. Um, as you know, you see the figures. The, the overall amount of money generated in music at the moment is more than it's ever been. So... There's no disaster. So, you know, people talk about, oh, it's terrible music. It's coming to an end. It's absolutely not. It's booming. Yeah, especially the vinyl. Never. The vinyl industry is just huge again. Yeah, It's never been bigger. It's never made more money. Yeah. But it's not the old industry. And so the people who complain are the old musicians who, who aren't used to how it now works. But the young people coming into it have got access to a, to a facility to, to promote themselves and make music they never would have had before. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And, and, you know, you don't have to be signed to a label, which is nice. You can just do it in your bedroom and then find your own way. Independence. Yeah, lovely. Well, I mean, yeah, not, you could never do that. I mean, it was, you need to think to, to even make a demo. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You had to find more money than it now. I mean, it's a demo studio with... And okay, it might be 10 or 20 pounds, but that's the same as three, 400 now. And if you're an out of work you know, or if you decided not to work because you want to be a musician, that's a huge amount of money. Yeah. But you couldn't, you couldn't do it in your bedroom. I and mean, recording that way was completely impossible. Yeah. And so it was a big investment even to make the demo. And to, to find, then find someone who paid you to make a master, virtually they're getting a deal from the demo. Yeah. And so it didn't, it was, you know, the, the record companies were very, very harsh gatekeepers keeping a huge number of people out of the music business. Yeah. I'm not blaming them. They had to be, and they couldn't invest in everyone who came in the door. But nowadays, everyone can bring their record up to virtually top professional standards. Yeah. And so the, the competition now really is between what is really good creatively and what isn't. Mm. Whereas before, the competition was sometimes about who the record company decided to sign up, even if they weren't the best possible talent around. They yeah. could be made it. So, mm-hmm. so it's changed a lot, and I think 
Well, I always think changes for the better. I, I'm not, not nostalgic. <laughs> so you went to Spain for a while, is that right? And you were producing a Spanish singer, an artist for a while? That oh, right? that was later. Thank goodness, yeah. That was later. After I um, got tired of managing rock groups in England, mm. um, yeah, I had this, I thought this is a brilliant idea. I said every year, this is 1970, 71, uh, every year there's, what is it, 8 million English people going to Spain uh, for the holidays, and sooner or later, one summer, there's going to be a big hit in Spain with a Spanish singer. Yeah. And everybody in England, from England who's been on holiday there is going to come home singing this song, and there's going to be a Spanish singer who becomes a star, and then, mark my words, I said, this is going to happen, <laughs> and I'm going to be the first to do it. So off I went to Spain, and I interviewed, and by now, because I've been the manager of the Alphas, had number one songs. Dusty, and by then, Elvis done the same song and had number one. So I had wow. some sort of track records, some status. And I went around and met all the top, top Spanish singers. Um, there was a guy called Junior, who I liked. He spoke very good English. Antonio Morales, he's called Junior, he's known as Junior. And he'd been in the Spanish equivalent of the Beatles, right. Sprinkos. There was another guy called Camilo Sesto, who was equally good. And Juan Gabriel, who was huge. Yeah. And, uh, and then there was a guy I didn't like much at all with a funny, quivery voice called Julio Iglesias. And he came and did a, some interview with me. And I said, I don't like your voice. You can go away. Um, <laughs> and I signed Junior. And we had number one record. I mean, we had the biggest selling single in South America ever. I, mean, we had, I think it's on 21 million singles. So it wasn't unsuccessful. Yeah. But it didn't do what I'd planned. It didn't happen in England. Right. And I, I worked with him for two, three years. And I, I had wanderlust. I didn't want to be stuck in one place. So I went off around the world. Wow. And I came back to England in 1978. And damn it, this guy, Julian Glaze, got a hit. <laughs> <laughs> and with the most awful old-fashioned song, Begin the Beginning. <laughs> so I was I was both very annoyed that I'd got it wrong, but also very pleased that I had got it right. I mean, what my, predict, my prediction was right. Yeah. I just chose the wrong person. <laughs> and then uh, when you got but back... I got say, having, said, having said that, the fun... I really enjoyed being um, a manager of a Spanish artist who was huge in South America. It's, yeah. it's a strange thing I can't explain, but having success in another country felt even more sort of successful than being successful in your own country. Wow. And more clever, I don't know, it just felt good. Is it because it's bigger than England? <laughs> it's everywhere's bigger. So it's, well, South America is bigger than England. Yeah. So, but anyway, it's, success in England means success in North America. America, right, yeah. yeah. Um, and I guess South America is about the same size market-wise. So to Spanish people, America's success, but South America to British people, North wow. America. So you come back in... But se- I've done both anyway. <laughs> so you come back in 78, so punk was still going. And in that melee, you found Japan. Is that right? You found the band Japan in the in the middle of the Yeah, uh, I've been away. You see, I've lived in Spain and then France for five or six years. Yeah. And I came back to England... And um, thought, well, I'd better get it. I'm run out of money. I always running out of money because I'm very, very extravagant. So no matter how many number ones I have, I do find hotels and restaurants which are happy to take it away from me. Uh, and um, so I came back to England, so I better get back into management. I was looking around, and, and I came across this group, Japan, and I thought, oh, they're amazing. They look fantastic. They've got this wonderful long hair. They wear a bit of makeup. What an extraordinary look. I thought... They can't not be stars. I mean, they are stars. Look at them. They're stars. Yeah. But I, in a way, I didn't know what was happening. And so I signed them up. 
and then um, went off to look what was happening in the clubs. Of course, what was happening in clubs was nothing to do with what they were. Yeah. It was punk. And people were jumping up and down like they were on poker sticks, spitting at the musicians on stage and throwing beer at them. Mm. Uh, you know, Japan were rather a feat. It's not what Japan were at all. So I struggled. Yeah. Um, but I'm a sort of don't give up person. And by then I think I'd begun to understand that I did know about management. I'd, I'd begun to learn about management. So I yeah. did sort of know a little bit about what I was doing. And um, so I worked hard with them and, and eventually we broke them in Japan. I, I had this idea, that was quite deliberate, that perhaps nobody liked them in England. And we made a first album, which was extremely good. And I listened, I listened now to Japan's first album, which is called Adolescent Sex, mm. especially the lead track. It's an incredibly good track. I can't understand why it wasn't a hit. Yeah. It wasn't. And I think it's because they looked all wrong. It wasn't because of the sound of it. Right. And so I thought maybe, you know, the name will help them in Japan. So I decided to tackle it very seriously. My, my flippant uh, way of managing the Alberts is now developed into some sort of um, understanding that you need to be serious to go and make these things work. And I actually went off and spent three months learning Japanese before I went to Japan. Wow. So I could arrive with the ability to, be, to at least be polite. And so I went off to Japan with this album and all the pictures of Japan and went in to see the record company, which would be the record which would have to release it. Because in England, we were signed to Hansel Records, and that meant in Japan they'd have to go out with EMI. Right. So that was their license. And I went to see the company in Japan, and they said, um, Photographs are amazing. We love this group. They're just exactly what Japanese kids like. Young teenagers, they love groups that look like this. Let's have a listen to the music. Mm. So I put the record on. Their faces fell. They said, oh, my God, we'll never sell this. It's absolutely not the right music. This was not no longer the first album. This was the second or third album, the new songs, which were Japan were never really pop music. They were quite complicated music. Yeah, art nouveau. And... Um, so I let them hear this, and they said, well, no, that's not the right music, but the image is good. But, you know, never mind. And so I got up to leave. Mm. Because if you're in an English or an American company, and they said, that's not the right music, that's where they were saying, look, goodbye, thanks for coming, you know, yeah. come again when you have something better. But Japanese people don't like that. They, they, they're very polite. <laughs> and what they meant by it, what they said, is exactly what they meant. The image is fantastic. The music's not right. Yeah. So when I go up to go, he said, well, thank you very much. So well, goodbye. He said, no, no, don't go. We've got to solve the problem. And I said, what problem? Well, the problem with the image is great and the music isn't quite so good, not quite, quite so suitable. Mm. So I said, well, how do you solve that? Oh, he said, we'll think of a way. And so I sat down with three or four people from the marketing people and A&R people from EMI in Japan, Toshiba, you know, it was. Um, and they devised a plan where... You have to remember there was no internet in those days, there was no faxes, there was no, no way of communication between countries. Mm. Nobody heard music in a country until it was actually made and the record was pressed in that country. Um, they said, what we'll do is we'll spend three months only working on the fan club. Right. Pictures, stories, send reporters to England to meet them before we put the record up. And we'll build up a big fan club. And it is. So by... Three months time, the fan club had 50,000 members, which for a, a non Japanese group is wow. the biggest fan club of any ever since group at the time. That's huge. And then finally, the record came out, and it came out, and 50,000 people 
60,000 teenagers went and bought that record the very first morning. So we we went straight to number one, 50,000 sales the first morning. But that evening, 50,000 teenagers went home and listened to the record and were very disappointed because they didn't <laughs> like it. But they spent that week's pocket money, and anyway, they'd already fallen in love with the group because of the pictures. Yeah. So they listened to and again and again and again. And the end of another week, they'd begun to quite like it. Crazy. And it was extraordinary because this music, which was absolutely not teenage music, had a teenage audience because and because of the way we approached it. Yeah. Um, so it's fascinating because as the group, I mean, first of all, they went there to a tour and every concert they played was full, mm. screaming teenagers. But normally teenagers of that age, 13, 14, who scream, when they get a bit older or you know, more mature, they move on to a new group. Yeah, because right. they're, embarrassed. they're embarrassed by the teenage group they're streaming at. But Japan were not like that teenage group. Yeah. So when they got a bit older, they stayed with it because the music was more complex and more interesting. Yeah, it was already, um, already there. New fans, the new fans who came, the new younger fans came in also. So it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Wow. So in the next three or four years, Japan became really absolutely huge in Japan. Wow. Uh, had over 150,000 people in the fan club. And became one of the biggest overseas groups ever in Japan. So that was a quite fun thing to do. So again, it's what I said. There's something tremendously exciting about creating a success in a country which isn't your own country. It just it feels rather good. <laughs> so I mean, I mean, Japan rode high for a long while, and then they generally, you know, like all bands, break down. And it was after that you wrote your first book. Was that a way of you know cathartically getting through the breakup of the band and it all sort of? Yes, I did. You're absolutely right. Um, yeah, well, Japan broke up, and um, which is a bit disappointing. I spent, I mean, eventually, I mean, we jumped there. We said how big we were in Japan. It took me five years to break them in England, which is something quite different. Mm. So after being that big in Japan, we'd come back to England after its Japanese tour, where we were completely unknown, and more than unknown, sort of almost scorned or laughed at. We were, we were out of our time. You know, punk was still the big thing, and then we, when it slowly emerged from punk. It moved onto things like Dire Straits. It didn't move straight into the, when the next big change was going to be, um, you know, the new romantics. But, yeah. And that's when Japan began to happen. But that was five years after we started. It's a long time. Yeah. But eventually we got to that point, and then Japan became really, really big in England. And then just when they became really big, they broke up. And I couldn't solve that problem. Yeah. So I thought I'd had enough. I thought I can't be bothered. Can't be bothered with any more groups. That's it. I, I, so I wrote a book. Um, it's the first book I wrote. Or you don't have to say that. Which, which uh, again, was quite sort of a, a, a quickly written book. I don't think I approached it with very much seriousness. I mean, a lot of people think it's a very funny book. Mm. But years go by, and only three or four years ago, The Observer Music Magazine did the top 50 music books ever, and they put that at number 11. Cool. Just totally embarrasses me because it <laughs> goes about Bob Dylan's autobiography and things like that. You think, how could that be? <laughs> but perhaps because of my flippancy and lack of seriousness, I, I captured a, a period in time. Yeah. You know, perhaps I captured the sixes in a way which I wouldn't have done if I'd settled down and done it more seriously. Mm. Uh, and then writing the book, sort of, um, during that time, I met Jazz Summers, who was another manager. <laughs> and he'd also had a group who'd had a number one record and then broken a group called Blue Zoo. Mm. And he knocked on my door one day and came to see me. 
and said, we ought to work together. And I said, why? I mean, he didn't seem to me like someone I'd get on with very well. Very, very different from me yeah. in every possible way. And, um, and he said, well, I just think we, we, would, we would get on. And he, he was, jazz was very deliberately down market. He talked in a rough voice. I was ex-public school. He was very straight. I was gay. As almost everything about the two of us seemed destined to absolutely not get on. <laughs> um, so I said, well, let's go to lunch. He did, he's arrived, let's be polite. So I went to lunch. We went to a simple Chinese restaurant on the corner. And then the first big surprise, he spoke Chinese. Wow. That's a surprise. He's not quite the man I thought he was. You know, he's slightly here, but more than him. Um, and bit by bit, we, we got on very well indeed. And we said, all right, well, let's work together and find a new group. But we don't want to bother taking a completely new group because that first year or two years, taking a group from nowhere to uh, their first hit is, is a complete waste of time. Yeah. Someone else can do it. And that first hit, in the end, is always luck. So I mean, no matter how much work you do, how much structure you think about and give it, it's luck. The yeah. first hit is luck. And then when you've had that first hit, then you've got something that you can build on and, and use your experience to build a group and turn them into major stars. So let's find a group which has had that first hit. And so we, we made a list of all the groups who had one or two hits and thought we'd go and see them and persuade them we should manage them. But they were Culture Club and, and uh, all, they were all, all groups who were, were pretty big already. Yeah. And we'd be stealing them from their managers if we did that. And we thought that was a bit difficult to do. And then we came across Japan. Well, we both seen Japan on top of the pops. Uh, and then we, we hit on Wham. And we both saw Wham on top of the pops. They were amazing on top of the pops. And we both realized this was a pretty special group. Yeah. And then we learned they didn't have a manager. Uh, their lawyer was looking after them in the meantime. Wow. So we saw them and then we just surrendered them. We, we should be their manager. That's amazing. We did. And um, so when you first met George and Andrew, what were they like? Were they sort of quiet? Were they excitable? Were they... Were they we know, we, we, you know, on top of the pops, on top of the pops, they, they were quite extraordinary. I mean, what was so extraordinary on top of the pops is they... The, top of the pops has no rehearsal. You just go down to the studio, get up the stage, sing your song, and the director works out a few camera angles. Off you go, come back and do it at six o'clock. That's going to be a take. Yeah. And... Um, they did it as if they'd, they'd been rehearsed by the director for three months. Wow. And obviously they'd been out of the studio previously, seen how it worked, and then re- rehearsed by themselves at home. So when they got on the stage, they knew how to work to the camera, knowing wow. that the camera probably wouldn't work to them. And so it looked like an incredibly choreographed piece of work. Was this Very young? impressive. And anyone who knows how Top of the Pops works would have looked at that and said, that's quite amazing. How did they do it? Was that Young Guns uh, or was that before or after Young Guns? It was pretty Young Guns. That's Young Guns. Yeah. Quite amazing. I saw and a... so they looked like twins on stage. You know, the two young guys around town who went off together to clubs, look for girls and things. But when they came into my flat and sat down in the sitting room, they were like opposites, not like twins at all. You know, Andrew was exactly like what you see on top of the pops. Mm. You know, it's a breezy sort of Cappy a lucky guy, lay back in a big armchair, put his feet on my coffee table, picked up a magazine. Oh, a nice pad you got here, man, that sort of thing. And George was straight to the point, why do you want to manage us? Who have you managed before? How are you going to do it? And you, you 
you're going to look after our money. We're going to have an accountant. We're going to have two accountants. And I said, what do you want two accountants for? He said, so one can keep an eye on the other. You know, so right from the beginning, you, George was there, you know, being very business-like. So they weren't like twins at all. Wow. Uh, and I realized the image was really Andrew, uh, the real Andrew. And then George was sort of copying Andrew and making a, a, a fake Andrew to go with him as part of the image. And so that was very interesting when people say Andrew never did anything. He, he really was the group in terms of imagery. Wow. And George, yes, was the songwriter, but everything about how the group projected came from Andrew's personality. That's amazing. Did you ever see their songwriting process? Do you ever get to see how they put a song oh. together? Well, you know, I just made this film about George and I learned in that film things I didn't previously know. Wow. Um, no, I never saw their songwriting process because they were already, they already had two hits. And so I let them just go ahead with however they did it. There's no point interfering with something which is working well. And so they would bring me the songs. This is what we're going to record next week. And I put the studio and they'd go in and produce it so I knew. And I sometimes went to the studio, but usually I just let them get it done. Wow. But then when I was latest film about George, I learned this extraordinary thing that George never, ever wrote out lyrics. George, when he was writing a song, made a backing track and then went to the studio and just sang lyrics into a microphone. Wow. And if he liked them, they stayed. And if he didn't like them, he changed them. Or he'd like one line and say, let's do another line there. Oh, that's, that's a good line, but that's worse. That's a good drop in another word instead and he'd sing that one word and drop it in the line because it had better flow or the consonants made a better effect with the echo or something like that. Um, and producer after producer who worked with him uh, told us in interviews with this film that they'd never seen anything like it, nor had I. That's crazy. But he actually sang straight into the microphone. That is amazing. That is amazing to, just to hear that, yeah. That's, that's crazy. And then um, you, you wrote your third book, wasn't it? I'm coming to take your lunch about taking Wham to China. <laughs> well, the second one, second one you missed, you're missing out saying Black Barn or White Hub, oh, which sorry. really was the best book I've written, I think, although I prefer the one you just mentioned. I really enjoy it. <laughs> uh, I'm coming to take your lunch, which is about taking Wham to China. That's a book I enjoyed writing and I, I enjoy rereading it now. That's good. But I did write Black Barn and White Hub, which is a really complete history of the British music business. Um, <laughs> And uh, both very, both good books. Sorry, am I allowed to say that? Of course books you are. Of course you are. Yeah, I've written long enough ago now that I can pick them up, read them, and not feel they're mine. You know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah, I don't have to look at them. Oh, it's embarrassing to say they're good. They're, they're good books. I like looking at them. Read. <laughs> Could you have just roughly touch on the the taking them to China part? Was that an easy thing to do? I know you travelled for eighteen well, months. Course, and- taking Wham to China was was really what I did for Wham. Uh, you know, George, George, and our very first meeting, for, not the first meeting, first meeting was in the flat I just told you about, but the, the week after we went for dinner, we went, George and Andrew and me and Jazz Sons, we went to dinner at the Bombay Brasserie in South Kensington. Mm. And um, we said, okay, let's plan what we're going to do. We've sort of agreed then we were going to be their managers. Let's plan how we're going to do this. And George turned to me and said, um, turned to us and said, said, uh, we want to be number one group in the world and you've got one year. And I said, you can't do that. I said, number one group in the world has to be the biggest group in America because it's 60% of the world market. And no one's ever done it in one year. The Beatles took three years. You can't just be number one in America in one year. Yeah. There's no there's no national press in America. It's not like the Daily Mail on the front page all over the country. There's, every city has its own newspaper. It's, it's a slow, slow process. 
And George said, well, that's it. You've got a year, do it or don't. Yeah. It's a bit like that. And um, and the jazz said, I'll tell you what, why don't we make you the first group ever to play in communist China? And then you'll be in all the newspapers, Time, Newsweek, all those magazines, on the news, and then you'll be number one in America. And uh, jazz knew that I was passionate about Asia. I loved going to Asia. It's what I, if I hadn't, if he hadn't knocked on the door I, the day we decided we'd manage one, mm. um, I would have gone off and been in Asia and write books. That's what I'd been planning to do. Right. So it was like jazz was giving me a permit to go and skive around in Asia to do what I wanted. Uh, and then he could look after Wham in Lingleton. Jazz liked being a manager, so he liked doing all the nitty-gritty day-by-day work, which had to be done in England. I liked sort of going around the world and music myself. Whatever I knew. And um, so I did. I went every single month. I went to Beijing for 18 months and finally persuaded the Chinese government to invite Wang to play in China, which was the first ever gig by a Western group in China. That's crazy. And it worked absolutely as we planned. You know, before the week before they played the gig in China, I'd gone into, into Los Angeles and gone through immigration. And uh, Careless Whisper was number one that week. Yeah. And I went through immigration and they said, yeah, buddy, what do you do? And I said, I'm a manager and I manage artists. And he said, anyone we heard of? You know, and I said, yeah, Wham's. No, never heard of Wham. And I said, well, number one this week. He said, yeah. He said, what's the song? And I sang over to Careless Whisper. He said, oh, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, it's called Wham, is it? Because, you know, DJs never say the name of the song. They never say the name of the group. They just play it. Yeah. And they don't have this national press, which is what builds the group's name. Hmm. But the week after we played in China, uh, I had to go to America again. I went through New York this time. And I went in, and there's the immigration, the immigration man again asked, what do you do? And I said, I manage groups. And he said, um, anyone we've heard of? And I said, wham. And he straight away screamed out, hey, Oh, friends, all the other immigration guys. Come over here, this guy manages Wham. You know, you've got these signed records, you've got the autographs, you've got the, you know, you've got the photographs. That week in China, they've been on ABC, NBC, CBS News 24-7. Wow. And the whole of America knew who they were. And three months later, we were playing a stadium tour of America. Crazy. So far. Not one year. Not one year, like George Glass. It was 18 months, but stop, <laughs> not bad. So uh, you got your new book coming out, Sour Mouth, Sweet Bottom. What's that about? Well, the other three books have all been about the music business. Mm. Uh, just, just about the music. There's a lot of me in the books and bits and pieces of my life. But this book I decided not to do that. I decided to write sort of vignettes of my life. So and the way I describe it in the first chapter was I picked up the photo album and I shook it and these are the snapshots which fell on the floor because it could have easily just been a different bunch of snapshots. Yeah. And so there's sort of 30 or 40 vignettes. Uh, half of them, in fact, are music businesses. That's what I've done most of my life. Mm. But a lot of them are personal, you know, about uh, travels, meals I've eaten, boyfriends I've had. I mean, there's quite a lot of personal stuff in there. Things I wouldn't normally think of telling people, but my very clever publisher sort of weaved it out of me and um, said it would be so easy to write, you know, because what makes a book so difficult to write is you have to work out the whole structure where it's going and how it flows. And if you do vignettes, you don't have to bother with that. You yeah. just say, well, you remember that event, sit down and write that. How will that fit with the next one? Don't worry, the next one will be completely separate. And he said he'd edit it together. So he took this big weight off my shoulders. Yeah. And uh, and on that basis, I just sort of sit, sat down and wrote a whole lot of things I remembered which amused me. Mm. And uh, I hope they amuse everyone else as well. 
I've read it through a couple of times. It seems to be quite well written, but it's a bit. Um, I wouldn't say it's disjointed, but it's um, it's not it's it's not a flow of story because you can't do your whole life in one book. Yeah, I mean, certainly not when you're as old as I am. <laughs> so it's it's just snapshots taken from an album, but wow. it's pretty good bits and it's good music. It's good music business bits as well. Yeah, fantastic. So if you're a musician coming up today, what what advice would you give anybody that was a new musician? <laughs> You're a musician who wants to be a pop star and famous and rich, a musician who likes music. Uh, a musician you don't mean music. a musician who likes music, do you? You mean <laughs> a musician who wants to be a star. Yeah, true, yeah. They're not the same thing. Yeah. I mean, look, you go you, you go to any studio and you'll see musicians in the backing group, and they're better musicians usually than anyone who's any of the stars. Yeah. I mean, certainly it's good and very frequently better. There's such different things between being a musician uh, and which might involve being a symphony orchestra or a jazz band or, or all sorts of things. Or wanting to be a star, and wanting to be a star is usually a, a sort of a weakness, and it's usually a psychological weakness or a need for some public love to make up for some hole in your emotional background. Ninety percent of artists, you'll find when you talk to them and delve into their background, that what's driven them to be a stars or an artists, performing artists, is the need for that audience to cheer them, love them. Yeah. Um, and they compromise too. You know, the idea that, oh, he's a big star, he doesn't compromise, it's rubbish. They all compromise because they want to be stars. They have to live with how the music business is. Mm. And, and the, the really silly concept people have is that artists are uncompromising. They, they have to think hard about when they do and when they don't compromise, but they all compromise because they want what the music business offers. And for that, they have to compromise with the business. Mm. Um, so the advice I'd give to someone who wants to be a musician is stay with the music you love and play it as well as you can. And the advice to anyone who wants to be a star is compromise with what the industry asks of you, but make sure you keep your music at the highest level possible. Uh, but it's a tricky one because you will always be compromised. You think it's something like Frank Sinatra, who was like this uncompromising, beautiful singer. He, every song was sung the way he liked to sing it. It's not true if you go back and look at his catalogue. There was one hit record, which was not much different from how much is that doggy in the window, and he has to go woof, woof in it. <laughs> I've got it's a duet with some woman. And you think, wow, this is Frank Sinatra. But that was the music industry at the time, and that's the songs they wanted, and he wanted a hit like it was, like he'd always been used to getting. Um, they all compliments. You have to compliments. Fantastic. And if people want to find out what, like more about your books, where's the best place to go to get your books? Um, the book? Oh, the book, so the book is uh, – I've got a copy here. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't think anyone else can get a copy for another month. It's out in October. Okay. Uh, Sam has Sweet Bottom on Unbound Books. You can go to Unbound Books now and buy a copy. Mm-hmm. You can even buy a copy. You can even buy a copy including uh, the right to come to my launch party. The last launch party I had for a book was a fantastic party. Well worth coming if you want. Yeah, fantastic. And um, and then also the film I made about George Michael is out now on Amazon, so you can look at that. And you can go to Spotify and listen to an amazing album by Amsterdam Rock Exchange. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be the best rock album you've heard for years. Fantastic. Simon, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Okay, thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. 